Good morning, everybody. Man, it's good to be, get, be together to worship Jesus. Hey, I've got some good news for you. You ready for some good news? Today, listen carefully, today is National Ice Cream Day. Yes, man. I read that this morning and I'm like, yes, this is awesome because I can worship Jesus with the gift of ice cream. You know, God is good. He's given us ice cream. So today, when you go to lunch or at some point today, you just look at your spouse and go, we need to worship the Lord with ice cream today. Come on, that's good news. All right. Yeah, amen. I was looking for that. Hey, um, man, I'm excited about this series that we're doing, Summer Break. We're breaking from bad theology And uh, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about the word theology. This idea sometimes gets a bad rap that somehow we think theology and theologians are for academics, uh, people who think too much and uh, their brain gets in the way of their spirit. But I really want us to embrace this idea that we are all theologians. So just want to remind us the word theology It's one word that is actually the combination of two words. We do this in English all the time, right? We take like the word automobile, auto, right? Uh, Self or alone and mobile or mobile to move. So an automobile what? Moves on its own. And then there's some really weird words that we've created that make no sense, like hot dog. Like that's a disturbing idea, right? But theology is two words, theos, God, and lagos, which can be translated word or thought. So theology is our thoughts about God. It's our view of God, but it's also God's thoughts about us and how we are to think about one another. Theology, it's important because the way that we view God the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view others has an amazing, powerful impact on how we treat one another, how we see the world. It has an impact on your daily personal life. We are all theologians. So why is theology important? Because from the study of God, to understand God's thoughts, to get our view of God, It impacts our daily life. And our theology must be grounded in the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible, is the revelation to us of God himself, his view of the world, and what he's doing throughout history. So our theology, and we're all theologians, has to be grounded in the Word of God. Last week, I encouraged all of us to meditate on Psalm 139. I hope you did that. I spent some time in the psalm. And uh, this psalm is good theology. Psalm 139, verse 1 and 2 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows us. He knows everything about us, even our thoughts. And he still loves us. 
Think about that. Wow. God knows us. And then the psalm continues. Verse 13, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. See, when we have the revelation, not only that God knows us, but he intentionally crafted us in our mother's womb, we realize we're not an accident. We are not random. God intended for us to have life. What's our response? The psalmist says, I praise you because your works are wonderful. You see, our theology, good theology, should stir response in us to respond in worship and delight in the Lord. But then the psalm continues in the last couple of verses. I asked us to use these verses this past week as a prayer. Verse 23 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because of God's great knowledge and care for us, we are compelled to worship God and hear this and to obey him. Our theology, our view of God should motivate us, compel us to want to please God. You see, pleasing God, wanting to give him pleasure is the root of our obedience. Now, this is a revelation of the nature of God. What is God like? This is one example of what he's like, but it's also a revelation of the nature of us. We are created by him. Our theology should cause us to respond in praise and worship and delight, but it also should cause us to respond in obedience, to obey. And for many in our culture, obeying, that's a bad word. Now, from theology, we develop our basis for truth, to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good and pleasing to the Lord, what is true. Now, what you think about God determines what you believe is true and how we act and how we behave. So, this is an incredible way that theology impacts our life, how we act every single day. And it has consequences in our life. Whether we obey the Lord and desire to please him or not, it has consequences. And here's the thing. Theology has consequences in our culture. You see, every person on the planet actually is a theologian. Every person has a view of God. They may believe there is a God or they may believe there isn't a God. But that's a theology. And it has consequences. And I want to talk about an example of those consequences of the view of God that our culture has in a way that I honestly would never thought I would have seen in my lifetime. 
And I'm for a moment going to venture out into popular culture and a little bit of politics here. Now, I want to say this up front. It is never my intention to use this platform to endorse or preach a political ideology. That's not my call. That's not my purpose. That's not why we gather. As an elder of this church with the gift of teaching and leading, it's my call to encourage all of us in our faith, to build up our faith, to preach and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, him crucified, and salvation in him alone. That's my intention today. So hear that. That's my biblical mandate. So in that regard, I want to ask you, have you seen this movie, The Sound of Freedom? Rondi and I saw this movie. I recommend it, but I will not see it again because it's gut-wrenching. And it's a powerful story of the world of human trafficking, especially the buying and selling of children for the purpose of sex. And it's claimed in the movie that the United States of America is a major consumer of children for sex. And I bring this up not because of the content of the film, actually, but because of the reaction to the film by some media outlets. There are some media outlets that are trying to discredit this film because of the politics of two of the people involved. This is a film that's based on a true story and the life of a man who has certain political ideas. And the actor that portrays that man has some political ideas. And they're trying to discredit the content of the film because of the politics of these two men. Now, here's why that's troubling to me. This movie is primarily about human trafficking, the buying and selling of children for the purpose of sex. That is wrong. It is always wrong. And there are some in our culture who honestly would say the sexual attraction for children is not wrong. Now, there's not all of the media outlets aren't saying this, but there are some that are pointing out the political ideology of men involved in the movie because there is a movement politically motivated to normalize this sexual expression. Now, you're fully aware of the political agenda of the LGBTQ plus community. I want to state right up front, our theology, biblical Christian theology, says that every human being is created by God. They have an inherent dignity and value. And we have an inherent responsibility to love every person. But there are people that have an agenda 
And there is the movement of the LGBTQ plus movement. I didn't understand the plus. For a while, I didn't understand all the letters until a few years ago. The plus is there in order to fight for the rights and to normalize any sexual expression. That's the reason for the plus. And there is a movement, it is small right now, that would say the sexual attraction of children is not wrong and needs to be included in the rights of all the other sexual expressions. Now, right now, let's, let's be clear. There is a nuance here. Hardly anybody is saying acting out on the sexual attraction for children is wrong. But to have that attraction isn't wrong. There is a growing academic movement to remove the word pedophile from our vocabulary. A pedophile is someone who's sexually attracted to children. Generally speaking, our culture considers that wrong and evil. Pedophiles should be locked up, especially when they act on it. But the academic movement is we need to remove the word pedophile because it has a stereotype. So they are trying to replace that word with ones who have a minor attraction, attracted to minors. Let's use that expression instead. Now, why is this important? Because to be honest with you, in my lifetime, I would never have expected to see things that are trying to be normalized that are being normalized. I never would have imagined that. I normally don't want to bring issues like this to just scare you. The world is bad. Church is good. Let's just stay out of the world. That's not what Jesus preaches. But we have to be very wise in what our theology is and what the world's view of God and humanity is. Now, what does this have to do with the church? A hundred years ago, it was a very far-fetched idea that entire Christian denominations would normalize sins that are explicitly prohibited by God in the Bible. It was almost unfathomable. But entire gen uh, denominations right now have normalized sins that are explicitly prohibited by God. How did we get here? How did we get to the point where the church is normalizing these things? Because Christians tell themselves we shouldn't judge. Somehow we have come to believe the lie that Christians should not judge. Now many of you are sitting there and you're probably thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus actually say that? Judge not lest you be judged. Yes, he did. But what did he mean? 
We have taken Jesus' teaching and morphed it into this. You believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe. You do you, I'll do me. Live and let live. I hear Christians say these things all the time. Because we have misunderstood the nature of God, and we have misunderstood Jesus' teaching because we've taken it out of context. So I want to take some time this morning, and I want us to understand what Jesus is really saying. Our theology has important consequences for how we think and how we act. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus said this, Judge not that you may not be judged. All right. Close our Bibles. There you have it. Jesus said it. I believe it. What's the problem? Judge not. Well, here's the problem. This happens frequently. We can take that one verse and create entire theologies based on that verse out of the context of everything else Jesus said in the verses to follow, in the chapter to follow, and throughout the entirety of the Bible. I've talked about this before. We have to take all of the teachings of Scripture and put them in the context in order to understand what Jesus meant So, let's read the whole context of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 7, again, verse 1, says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your... Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And here's the key concept. You hypocrite. We cannot be self-righteous by pointing out other sin and not dealing with our own sin. Jesus is not saying, do not make judgment calls on right and wrong. He teaches this all throughout the Gospels. He is saying, do not be judgmental. There is a difference. Making judgments is discerning right from wrong. Being judgmental actually puts others down and puffs ourselves up. Jesus was using exaggeration or hyperbole. He uses this tool often. He says, while we notice the speck in our, another's eye, we ignore the log in our own eye. Are we literally to think that there are logs sticking out of our eye? No. Now, it's ironic. Some of us, man, I believe the Bible literally. I take it literally. No, you don't. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. That makes no sense. There's a log sticking out of your eye. Now, this is a teaching tool to demonstrate what we do when we point out somebody else's sin. We actually minimize our own sin. This is being judgmental. Church, I need us to hear this. When I talk about these cultural things that are happening, it's actually easy for us to point out the log of sin in culture's eye. What? Normalize sexual attraction to children? Wrong. And so and so and so. I'm not saying we should not do that. But we have to be very careful of being judgmental instead of making judgments. We minimize our own sin while pointing out others. And it happens in the church almost more than outside the church. Now, in my pastoral ministry, I have the privilege and the opportunity to help people walk through their spiritual growth and to deal with issues of sin. And I'm going to get real here for a minute. I've heard men tell me, sure, I look at porn once in a while, but at least I'm not sleeping on my wife like so-and-so is. Oh, good for you. You can justify your sin by pointing out somebody else's worst sin. Or the wife that says, oh, sure, I, I really don't show my husband much respect. But at least we're not getting a divorce like the so-and-sos. Or occasionally I drink too much. But at least I'm not an alcoholic like my coworker. You see how this happens? And if we are really honest with our own heart, we do this frequently. Sure, I may have a little bit of this, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of anger, a little bit of judgmentalism, but at least I show up at church. I actually sing the songs. I give a little, I serve a little. That's a justification to continue in our sin. And it's like human nature. In order to make ourselves look good, we put others down. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Because the measure by which you judge, it will be measured back to you. We judge ourselves lightly while judging others harshly. Happens all the time. Now, Jesus is not saying don't make judgment calls. He is saying don't be judgmental. And just a few verses later, in the same chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets. These are wolves in sheep's clothing, ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruit. What does that mean? 
you have to make a judgment on their character. You will know them. You will judge them by their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. He's teaching us to discern the difference, make a judgment call. Now, I want to give a simple guide to following a biblical method of making judgments and not being judgmental. It's pretty simple. Check this out. Judge the right people in the right way. Judge the right people in the right way. I want to make sure I'm clear in what I mean by judging. It's about discerning what's right and wrong, making judgment calls. It's not condemning someone and humiliating them. There is always temptation to do that. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth. He actually wrote, we have recorded two letters. It's likely he wrote three letters. Three letters to the same church. Why? This church was messed up. I mean, if you really look at what was going on in the Corinthian church, I'll be honest with you, I'd be done. Like, there is no hope for you. And there would be lots of condemnation. God, hellfire, brimstone, burn them to the ground. But no, Paul took the time to instruct them with great care. Don't do that. And there was something happening in the church that was very similar to what Jesus was teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul said to this church, I wrote to you in my letter... This is why we think there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Boom, let's close the Bible. All right. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. Good. Got it. Whew. Now, there are people that stop there. That is their attitude. But Paul says this. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Basically, he's saying sexual immorality is everywhere. In the church, outside the church. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Pause. He says, I'm saying not to associate with one who bears the name of brother. What does Paul mean by that? In his writings, the name of brother is a follower of Jesus. Because our theology says this, that when we are in Christ, now we are actually family, brother and sister, and now God is our father. We are family, brothers and sisters. And if you bear the name brother or sister, what does that mean? You take on the identity of follower of Jesus. 
It's a little bit like college logos, right? We don't even have to see the cowboy and the horse or the OU. We literally can just see the color orange or the color crimson. We're like, oh, I know what name you bear, right? It's more profound than that. It's a little bit more like the Marines. Now, I didn't serve in the military. I know Marines. And they have a saying, once a Marine, always a Marine. What does that mean? You may serve for two years, four years, or 20 years. But once you get out, you will represent the Marine Corps always. Your behavior, the way that you act, the way that you serve represents the Marine Corps. So that stupidity you're doing, Marine, stop it. Once a Marine, always a Marine. We took a vow. And Paul is saying, if you bear the name of brother or sister in Christ, we should go to one another and say, stop it. For the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Question. He probably has answered his question. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Listen, is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. We are to be discerning. We are to judge one another inside the church for sure. Those outside the church, different story. We're going to get into that. But we have to judge the right people. First and foremost, we have to make judgment calls and hold each other accountable. Now, again, we have to take this in context of all the teachings in the New Testament because it's very clear. If you go to a brother and they repent, then you can be restored. Okay? So there's a qualification here. If one of us is caught in or has a lifestyle, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry. We don't instantly disavow them, kick them out. We go to them. We point it out. Brothers and sisters, our response should not be, how dare you? Don't judge me. Mm -mm. We are to welcome a brother or sister who comes to us making us aware of our sin. Thank you. Now, if that truly bears witness with you, many of us know instantly we need to repent, confess it, repent, and we can be brought back into fellowship. But those that are outside the church, 
They've not been born again. They don't have a regenerated heart and mind. They don't have the spirit of God in them. How can we expect them to live like a Christian when they don't have the Holy Spirit of Christ in them? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they don't have the Spirit of God. Paul says that to the Corinthian church. Judge insiders, not outsiders. But again, we need to keep these instructions in the context of what the New Testament is saying. The goal of confronting sin is always to restore a person in right relationship with Jesus right relationship with their family, and right relationship with the church. I want to read this in Galatians. Another instruction to another church. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is how we are supposed to judge one another with the idea of restoration. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's the spirit of what Jesus is teaching us. If you think that you're something, oh, my sin's nothing like your sin. You got a log in your life, brother. If we think we are something when we are nothing, we deceive ourselves. We judge insiders, not outsiders. And we judge with gentleness and humility with the goal of restoration. Now, I need to say a word about those in Christian leadership. Because those in Christian leadership, elders, particularly those that lead and the lead pastor, I'm first and foremost an elder with the gift of preaching and teaching. Those in Christian leadership, if they have sinned with sexual immorality, greed, heresy, there's actually a higher standard. We are called to feed the church and protect the church. If any Christian leader is found to actually abuse the people in the church, we should restore them to Christ and to their family, but we need to be very cautious of restoring them to roles of leadership, particularly in that congregation that they've served. I'm only saying that because we do need to make judgment calls, and there is different standards For those who are in leadership, I have a particular high call on my life to live in such a way as to feed the church and protect the church. There are some things I can do that will disqualify me from that role, but yet I can be restored to my relationship with Christ and to my family. Not to be humiliated but to protect the church. Now, there's another thing I had to really think through in studying what Jesus was saying. If we are to make judgment calls about those inside the church and not judge those outside the church, do we just let pedophiles abuse children? Oh, they're outside the church. Who am I to judge? 
how do we know where that line is? Is that what Jesus would actually want us to do? No, absolutely not. If we take the whole counsel of the word of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see over and over again that the people of God are morally obligated to care for and protect the most vulnerable of our society. Children, particularly orphans, widows, the poor. We have an obligation to protect them. Micah 6.8 says, What's required of us, the people of God, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Doing justice, it's not a legal punishment for crime. Doing justice is finding a need and filling a need. Doing justice is seeing a particular brokenness and bringing the hope of the gospel. That's doing justice. The Old Testament teaches us that the people of God are for, to care for the oppressed and the vulnerable. Jesus taught that we should feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the pr prisoner, and when we do, we do this to the least of our brothers. It's like doing it actually to Jesus. So when it comes to children who are being abused, oppressed, or even killed before they're born, we are called to bring mercy and justice. The innocent cannot protect themselves. Followers of Jesus cannot hide behind, well, do not judge. And don't let anybody else convince you when it comes to those that are vulnerable, especially children. We shouldn't judge. And we don't need to be self-righteous. We have to protect them. Self-righteousness is being more concerned about others' sin than about our own. Self-righteous people don't have a heart to serve. They don't want to restore. They just want to make themselves feel better because it's easy to point out other people's sin. I heard a preacher say one time, self-righteousness is pursuing a PhD in other people's sin when you have a fourth grade knowledge of your own. Hmm. I actually may have that diploma hanging on my wall, if I'm being honest. Church, we need to break ourselves from the bad theology that God doesn't want us to make judgment calls and just live and let live. We need to rise to the level of accountability with one another to help restore us to a right relationship with Jesus to point out our sin, brother to brother, sister to sister, not in a self-righteous, judgmental way, but in a way that's humble and gracious. For some of us this morning, God is calling you to repent of a judgmental spirit on this world. We need to ask God to help us to bring justice and kindness to people who are vulnerable, oppressed, and abused. 
we have to stop pointing out the problems in the world and start becoming the solution to those problems. There's so many problems, I don't know the answer to them. But we can make a difference one step at a time. And I'm going to encourage you to do something this week. I want you to go to our website, discoverychurchok.com. There's a button that says serve. Under that drop-down window, you'll see the words local causes. It says this, our desire as a church is to, is to strategically reach into our community, break down barriers, serve the overlooked, and demonstrate the love and hope of Christ for all people. Now, we can't do everything, but under that, you'll see a list of what our local causes are. These are ministries and organizations that we partner with. We send them money to help them accomplish their goals. But just as important, and in some cases more important, we want to send you. Most of the organizations will say, you know what? We would almost rather have your people show up than the check. Because the gifts that you have, the heart that you have, will affect people's lives for an eternity. Now, we're going to still send that money because it's important. It takes the funds to accomplish those goals. We want to help these organizations do what God has called them to do. But I want you to say to yourself, to help me not be judgmental, I'm going to step into the world of those who are vulnerable, oppressed, and who need love and care. So I challenge you to this week. The last thing I need to say is to two different kinds of people. Some of you know that you have dealt harshly and self-righteously with another person because of their sin. Repent. Go to them and ask them for forgiveness. Some of you are actively in sin. Don't wait for another person to come to you to talk about it. Confess to God today and then go to another person, another brother or sister in Christ. Confess it to them and ask them to help you be restored to Christ. The Lord is patient and kind. He's full of grace and truth. God will shine a light on our sin, but with grace and truth. Because he wants to restore you, not crush you. So we're going to continue to worship this morning. And I would love for the worship team to come up to the stage. And I'd like every person to stand up, if you're able. Stand to your feet. In this moment, we have an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to begin to adjust our theology by looking into our heart. Do we have a judgmental spirit? What does the Lord say to us? And in this moment, we also have the opportunity to hear the voice of God calling us to go into the world and do justice 
bring mercy, and bring the hope of Christ. I pray all of that can happen for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, I praise you because you love us. You know us, everything about us, and you still love us. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from spirit of judgmentalism. And Lord, deposit in us the wisdom it takes to make good judgments. Help us to bring justice and mercy to this world and not judgmentalism. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we want to love others as we love ourselves. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.